Well, Albert Einstein was traveling by train one day to an out-of-town engagement. And uh, the scientist was busy, uh, preoccupied with some other things, when suddenly he noticed the conductor is standing next to his, his seat. And uh, he says, uh, Dr. Einstein, do you have your ticket? So Albert Einstein reaches into his pocket, and it's not there. He checks another one, starts checking all his pockets. Then he frantically begins to search through his briefcase, and he can't find his ticket anywhere. And the, the conductor says to him, he says, it's okay, Dr. Einstein. We, we know who you are, uh, and we, we're sure you bought a ticket. And so he moves on to the next seat, and he's punching tickets, and he looks back, and he's, he's surprised to see Albert Einstein on his hands and knees under his seat searching around. So the conductor comes back and says, Dr. Einstein, it's okay. We, we know who you are. And, and he has this exasperated look on his face, and he says, well, I too know who I am, but I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> if I were to ask you today, where are you going? How would you answer that question? You know, I think many of us would begin to speak in terms of goals, right? Those who are kids would say, well, I want to grow up. I want to get through school, maybe go on to college. Others will say, I want to learn a trade. Those of us who are a little bit older say, well, my goals are to get a job or advance my career, maybe get married, have a house, have kids. Those who are a little bit older would say, my, my goals are to have enough to retire uh, I want to be able to travel some. I want to spend time with my grandkids. And those are all great goals. But as people pursue these plans, many come to a point where they say, is this really all there is? Is, is life about punching a clock and then one day pushing up daisies? So we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 5. What we're going to see is there were a couple of guys who were going about their day-to-day -day routine. Peter, James, and John are fishermen. They're, they're out at work. They're doing uh, what many do, pursuing these goals. They're hoping to catch fish, to sell, to pay the bills, maybe put a little bit away. And as they're going about their day-to-day -day life, suddenly their world is going to turn upside down because they're going to find that there's more to life. There's, there's a, a call that comes that shows them there's more to life than what they've been pursuing so I invite you to look with me at Luke chapter 5, where I want to read verses 1 through 11. Luke 5, 1 says, Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing in around him, this is Jesus, and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. This is also called the Sea of Galilee throughout the scriptures. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, uh, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and he began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out to the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and the nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came, and they filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. 
And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, as our passage begins, Peter, James, and John are at work. They've worked all night, and now that they're, they're at the end of their shift. And, and, and they're cleaning their nets. They're repairing them. They're washing them, laying them out to dry. And uh, they're getting everything ready for the next shift, the next night of work that's to come. And we see that this, this shift hadn't gone well because Peter said in verse 5, we fished all night and caught nothing. Now, that may seem like a normal fishing trip for some of us, right? But remember, these guys are professionals. They, they make their living fishing. And if they caught nothing, there's nothing to sell. The bills are going to go unpaid. And they're frustrated. They're tired. They've, they've been up all night working, a, a, a tough physical job, throwing out nets and pulling them in. Uh, they're, they're probably not in a very good mood, which threatens to get worse because as they've got all their equipment laid out on the shore to dry, it says these crowds are pressing in. You, you can picture people starting to step on their nets and, and get in the midst of their workspace, and, and they're, they're trying to get their nets put up in the boat. And, 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 and as all this is happening, it's, it's not just the fishermen who are being pressed uh, for space, but Jesus himself, his, his back's against the water, and, and the crowd is backing him literally into the lake. And so it says that Jesus, feeling the crush of the crowd, gets into Peter's boat. Now, maybe you're picturing something like a little 15-foot John boat uh, or a bass rig, but these are professional fishermen. These are big boats. They're, they're 30 feet uh, in, in length. They've got a small sail. They've got oars. They're equipped. There's two of them that are sitting there. And as Peter is in his boat trying to stow the gear, this guy steps into his boat. Now, Peter's not startled because this is some stranger. He sees that it's Jesus, and he knows Jesus. If you were here last week, you'll recall in Luke 4.38, we saw where Jesus had been in Peter's home. After they went to a service at the synagogue, they came to the house, and Peter's mother-in-law, you'll remember, had a high fever. And Jesus was there in his home, and he healed her. Uh, this isn't the only encounter they've had with Christ. Uh, they, they were there hearing him teach in the synagogue. They saw when he healed demons. He saw when, when he was healing others. He's been teaching with power and authority, as we saw, which is why these crowds are following him. Peter and the others have heard Jesus teach before. This isn't their, their first encounter with Christ. Uh, there's even been some one-on-one -on -one interaction with Jesus. Luke doesn't reveal that for us, but if you turn over in your Bible to Luke, I mean to John chapter 1, in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, you see where they had had, had a previous encounter with Christ in a one-on-one in -on -one setting. John the Baptist has just baptized Jesus. And uh, we pick up the story there in Luke 1, 35 through 42. It says, again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speaking, and they followed Jesus. These are followers who have been with John, learning from John, and now they're transferring over to Christ. It says they followed Jesus, and Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
And he found first his own brother Simon, and he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon Peter, you are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. Now, I'm giving you this background here because I think some of us have grown up reading this passage. Maybe you were in a Sunday school and and the teacher went through the little flannel graph or flip chart and said, well, here they were, and Jesus came and said, follow me, and whoop, they just jumped up and and followed him. Never before. This isn't a drive-by calling is what I want you to see. Okay? These are guys who have been around Jesus. They've had multiple encounters. They've they've heard him teaching. They've heard the claims that are being made. They've seen the miracles. They've had lots of exposure to who he he is. So when we read in verse 11 how it says they left everything and followed him. This isn't a blind faith. This isn't an emotional reaction. They had evidence. This is all part of the foundation of faith that will show up in Mark chapter 8 and Matthew 16 when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And there we're told Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, in a group this size, there are people here this morning that are sitting here saying, I don't really know who this Jesus is. I've heard the stories. It's Christmas time, and everybody's talking about this baby of Bethlehem coming to become the Christ of Calvary, and, 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 and I'm hearing these stories, but I'm just not sure that he's really who he claims to be. And if you're somebody here this morning who has not yet come to a point of faith, and you're skeptical, and you're searching and looking, I want to tell you, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here listening to the Word of God. I'm glad you're looking. I'm glad you're checking and and trying to figure out, is he really who he said he was? God's not afraid of questions. God wants us to look at the evidence. The evidence will point you to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. In fact, that's why the Gospel of Luke was written. Do you remember what we saw in Luke chapter 1, verse 1? Turn over to Luke 1, 1. Because there it tells us, this is why God gave us this Gospel. Luke 1, 1 through 4 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke is saying, I did not personally witness these things, but I've talked to those who did. I've interviewed Mary, Jesus' mother. I've talked to the disciples. I've looked at all the evidence. And he goes on to say, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully, from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Remember, this is his Roman official. And Luke is saying to him, why is this whole stuff recorded for you? He says it right here. So that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And Peter is one who's been taught as well. He's been taught in one-on-one question and answer with Christ. He's been in the synagogue as he's heard Jesus preach. He's, he's there right now in the boat hearing another sermon. I mean, what a great pulpit. I wish I had a fishing boat for a pulpit, right? I mean, as, as Christ gets in the boat, it's pushed out from the shore for a couple of reasons. One is so the crowd can all see who he is. And water is a natural amplifier. And so as Christ is speaking, everybody's hearing clearly what Jesus is saying. And who has the best seat in the house? It's Peter. 
Peter's the captain of the boat. He's sitting there right at the feet of Jesus listening to the sermon. So he's been, he's been taught not only by others but by Christ himself. And in Luke 5, 4, we're told when Jesus finishes his sermon, he gives the benediction, and then he turns to Peter and he says, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And this is where Peter says, Master, we've worked hard all night. We've caught nothing. You, you can hear that frustration, right? You, you, you see what Peter's doing here is he's in a very respectful way kind of saying, really, Lord? He doesn't know he's Lord yet. He's saying, Jesus, I'm the fisherman. You're the son of a carpenter from a little inland village called Nazareth. Who, who knows more about fishing? You know, the sun's up. Uh, the fish are going deep. They're looking for shade. They're not eating at this time. He, he, he's, he's just trying to get Jesus to, to say, you know, Peter, you're right. You, you know better than I do about this. Peter's saying, you know, if I drop the nets in the water, they're wet, they're slimy again, I've got to wash them, I've got to lay them out, that's several more hours of work. And, and he's got all this list that he wants to say, but look at the next words he says. But because you, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. If you write in your Bibles, that's a great set of words to underline. Because you say so. How many times have you had a situation in your life where you, you, you read something in the Bible or you hear a pastor say, this is what God's word says, and they show it to you, and you immediately go, you know, I've got a, I've got a long list of, of why I know better, why that doesn't make any sense. Can I confess something to you? There are, there are times that I read something in the Bible, there are times I see something happening in the world, and it makes no sense to me. And, and, and I, I immediately begin to come up with my own list as to why I know better than God does or why I would do something different than God does. And in those moments, what I remind myself of is a passage like Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. And I just write those words across it because Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And it's in those moments, just like we see in the book of Job, where he, he says, I will shut my mouth because you're God and I'm not. And in those times where you have something in your life where you're saying, God, I know better than you. You say when somebody hurts me, I'm to forgive them. You tell me when I have an enemy who's persecuting me, I should pray for them. And, and it makes no sense to us. But what we need to do is say, but because you say so, God. I will do it. Because you say I should forgive those who have hurt me, just as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, forgive us our trespasses, our, our, our sins, our wrongs. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others who've trespassed against you. Jesus, you forgave me for all the times I hurt you. You forgave me for all the wrongs I did. And while that doesn't compute sometimes, we have to say, because you said so, God, I will do so. And as we follow him in obedience, you know what happens? When we forgive those who have hurt us, what God saves us from is bitterness in our life, something that consumes us, this desire for revenge and getting even. And if you're always trying to get even, you never get ahead. 
And and in those times where God says, do this and you will be blessed, not these prosperity preachers who who are just trying to get your money and stuff, but when God says, do this and this blessing will come, that happens to Peter. He says, Peter, let down your nets. And if Peter had said, I'm not going to do it, Lord, I got skunked all night. It's just going to be a waste of time. He would have missed out on the biggest catch of his life. So here's Peter. He moves out to the deep water. He drops his nets overboard. And as, he's, as, as the nets are in the water, I mean, I want you to be on the boat with Peter for a moment and imagine what it's like. He's, he's hauling in these nets. They're wet. They're heavy. They're these fibers that have been woven together. And as he's pulling them in, muttering to himself, I knew this wasn't going to do any good. It's just more work. And all of a sudden, he feels some resistance. And he goes, oh, great. Must be a log that I just snagged, Right? It's going to tear my net, more work fixing it. And he's just he's pulling the net in, and suddenly the net's kind of pulling back. You ever had that experience when you're fishing, right? Hey, I think there's something there. And as he, as he pulls the nets closer to the surface of the water, it explodes. It's, it's like a, looking at a pot of boiling water. There's so many fish, the water is just rolling over. And Peter's eyes go wide. He's wide awake at this moment. Wow, he's not only getting splashed with water, but there's all this fish. And what does he do? He starts screaming at his buddies on the shore, hey, bring the other boat. These guys are jumping in the boat. They're trying to row out, get the sail up, get out to where, where Peter is. And as he's holding the net and he's pulling, the boat's probably getting pulled along because there's so many fish. And this other boat comes alongside and they, they, they grab the nets and they start to, start to bring the thing in. And as they're doing so, you can imagine the frustrations turn to excitement. They're, they're, they're pulling in all this fish, and they're filling these 30-foot-long boats. The, the floor of the boat, it says, is filling up to the point that the boats begin to settle in the water. There's tons of fish literally coming on board, and the boats are about to sink, and the nets are threatening to break. There's still so much. And as, as these guys are, are looking at this, they've fished their whole life. I mean, they've had some great catches, but never has anyone had a catch like this. This isn't just a lake record. This is a bona fide miracle. Peter, as a professional fisherman, knows you don't catch fish like this, especially at this time of the day after the conditions we've just gone through. And at that moment, the light goes on for Peter. And and he realizes everything that he's been hearing others say is true. Remember his brother Andrew said in John 141, we have found the Messiah. And Peter went and met him and thought, he's a good preacher. Nice guy. He he was there when the demons were cast out, as we saw in Luke chapter 4. And do you remember what the demons said in Luke 434? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Peter at this moment says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. You are the promised Messiah. You are the Son of God. And at that moment, Peter realizes just what he looks like in the presence of the Lord. And he falls on his face. And he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter is confronted with who Jesus is. And he realizes who he is, and he feels unworthy. Have you ever come to that point in your life? 
Have you ever realized who Jesus really is? The Son of God. The perfect God who came and took on flesh and blood and walked among us. And as we look at ourselves and who we really are, are we like Isaiah when he was ushered into the presence of God and when he saw who God was, he said, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Have you ever come to that point where you've said, God, I am so unworthy to be in your presence? If you feel that way, you're right. We are unworthy. Romans 3.10 tells us there is an unrighteous, no, not one. It tells us in Romans 3.23, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory, the perfection of who God is. But it doesn't mean we have to have the reaction of, of Peter. Where, where he says, depart from me, God. I know you don't want to be around me. That's what our enemy wants us to believe, but that's not what God says. Romans 5.8 tells us God demonstrated his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't run from us. He came to meet us. I want you to remember the scene. Peter is there in the boat that is filled to, to the gunnels with flopping fish. These things are, are gasping for air. They're smelly, they're flopping around, and where's Peter? Peter is literally down in them with his face in the middle of the fish looking up at Jesus going, depart from me. What a beautiful picture of what we look like to God, right? Dirty, smelly, gasping for air, desperate people who have no hope if it wasn't for the one who left his throne in heaven to walk among us, to be in the muck and the mire. Jesus is there knee-deep in the fish as well. And, and he doesn't say to Peter, get away from me. You say, you know, it's kind of a little bit humorous that Peter says, depart from me, Jesus. Do you remember where they are? They're out in a boat in deep water. What, what, what's Jesus going to do? Get out of the boat and walk on water? I mean, only God can do that, right? Like we're going to see him do later in the Gospels. And Peter is struck with the sinfulness of who he is and the holiness of who Christ is. But rather than running from him, Jesus speaks the words that we've seen over and over through Luke. When an angel shows up to somebody, when God speaks to a person, there's that immediate fear that grips him. And each time God says, do not fear. Do not be afraid. And he says to Peter the same thing, Peter, don't be afraid. I didn't come to destroy you. I came to call you. From now on, you are going to be a fisher of men. You're going to be catching men. And we're told that they bring the boats ashore. There's these two boats with the biggest payday they would ever have. And as they look at it, as, as they bring the boats ashore, and they look at it, I mean, what would you be doing? Would you be saying, wow, now I can finally afford to take the missus on that trip? Or, you know, I've always wanted that little outboard motor for the boat. I can go get it now. And, I mean, would you start to be saying, wow, thank you. Look at all this, this revenue. This, this, I mean, their boat has literally, their ship has come in. And yet it says they turn and they walk away from it. The biggest payday of their life. And they turn and walk away from it. There's a theologian of the past named William Barclay. And he once said there are two great days in a person's life the day they are born, and the day they discover why. There are two great days in a person's life, the day they are born and the day they discover why. 
We were made for bigger things than building a bank account, padding a resume, having more toys than anybody else so we can say when we die, we, we were ahead of the other person. And these guys recognize that the moment where their payday has come, where the, everything they've ever dreamed of, they say, this doesn't, this compared to the call we've just been given, there's not even a comparison. And it says they just walk away. It's why so many people look at their lives and they say, is this all there is? Have you ever had that question? Have you ever sat there and thought, is this really all there is in life? And the reason you feel that way, friends, is because Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us God has set eternity in the hearts of men. God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women. He tells us that is not all there is. You're not here just to punch a clock and one day push up daisies. He says your life was made to, to have significance, to know me and make me known. Jesus was constantly challenging others to look beyond our life here. He said it in Matthew 6.33. He said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things are going to be given to you. That's why Jesus told parables like the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and does what? Sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. And it's why here in Luke 5.11, when it says they bring their boats ashore that are overflowing with fish, that are the biggest payday they could ever have, have dreamed of, it says they walk away. They say this isn't all there is. There's something of much greater value to pursue. Now, maybe you're sitting here squirming in your seat saying, okay, here it comes. I know what Roger's going to say. Go quit your job. Go sell all your stuff. Enroll in seminary. Become a missionary. Uh, go and do these things. If that's what you're worried about, relax. I'm not going to tell you that. Now, if God has that call on your life, if God has that clear call in your life, then yes, you need to do that. And if you're sitting here saying, I'm not really sure what that looks like. I've just kind of felt some promptings that maybe God wants me to consider full-time vocational ministry or being a missionary. I would love to sit down with you and talk to you and hear your story. What is it that God is prompting you to pray with you, to help you figure out what are some next steps to see if that's really what God wants you to do with your life? But I want you to hear this morning that God doesn't call everybody to walk away from their workplace. God doesn't call everybody to leave their homes and go be a missionary in a far-off country. God doesn't call each of us that way. He does call each of us to be full-time representatives of him in the places that he has us. As you look throughout the Bible, you'll see there are plenty of times where Christ encounters somebody and he calls them without telling them, leave everything and follow me. Later in, in Luke chapter 19, we're going to come to the story of a man named Zacchaeus. Anybody ever read about Zacchaeus, the tax collector? What about little Zacchaeus, right? He's this wee man up in a tree. Jesus comes along and Jesus sees him. And what does he say to Zacchaeus? Leave everything and come and follow me. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I need to come to your house for dinner tonight. And Zacchaeus isn't told to leave his house. 
He's told to go to his house where Jesus is going to come. And do you remember what happens when Zacchaeus comes to faith in Christ? He says, I'm going back to my workplace, and I'm going to make everything right. Everybody I've cheated and stolen from, I'm going to make restitution. And at that party, who did Zacchaeus bring? All of the other scoundrels that he knew, right? He gets all the other thieves and cheaters and people, and he brings them together to say, hey, come and meet the man who is the Messiah. Have you read John chapter 4 about the woman at the well? Jesus encounters her. She's there. He's talking to her. And Jesus kind of goes through her life and says, uh, uh, go call the man that you're living with who's not your husband, right? And let me tell you about all the other people you've been involved in. And what does she do? She goes back to her village And she says, come and meet a man who told me all about myself. Could this be the Messiah? And many in that village come to faith in Christ. He sends her back to where she is, to her world. You heard Walt talk about the joke of deviled ham. Remember uh, in Mark chapter 5, there's the miracle where Jesus casts the the legion of demons out out of the man and they go into the swine and they run over the cliff. That happened in a place called Gerizim. It's called the Gerizim Demonic. And as Jesus heals this man, uh, this is what happens in Mark chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. It says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might come and accompany him. This is a guy begging Jesus, let me come with you. Let me follow you. Let me leave everything and come with you. And what does Christ say? Mark says, and he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. God does not call everyone to leave everything and follow him. But he calls everyone to follow him where we are. To go into our workplaces, to go into our homes, to go into our schools, to go into our spheres of influence. And, and tell people about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. As you think about the places that God has you this morning, are you a witness for Christ in your workplaces, at the base where you work, in your schools, in, in various uh, settings that God has you? Or are you one of these secret service Christians that is so deep undercover that nobody knows anything about you and your faith? Jesus calls us to impact the places where we are. There's a pastor by the name of Mark Buchanan. He wrote a book called Your Church is Too Safe. And in it, he points out the difference between a traveler and a tourist. A traveler is a word that literally means one who travails. It means a person who labors, who suffers, who endures. And he says a traveler or a travailer immerses himself in a culture, learns the language, the customs, lives with the locals, imitates the dress. He eats what is set before him. He's gone a long time. And if he ever returns, he doesn't return the same way he went. He's been altered. Now, the word tourist literally means one who goes in circles. That's a good word, isn't it? Because when we're a tourist, we're just kind of taking an exotic detour, but we come home. 
You see, a tourist is only passing through. They sample the wares. They acquire souvenirs. They retreat each night into what's safe and familiar. He picks up a word here, a phrase there, but he returns to where he comes from with an album of photos, a few mementos, and a cheap hat. And he's, he's happy to declare there's no place like home. Tourism is safe, isn't it? We, we arrange ahead of time what our schedule will be, where we're going to travel to, what we're going to see, uh, what our itinerary is going to be. We, we know our hotel. We know our next plane. We know our next ship we're going to catch. We have a budget that's prearranged. And we go out and we have an excursion. We have a wonderful time. But that's not what we're talking about today. You know, as Jesus calls the disciples to follow him, it doesn't say, and Jesus immediately presented them with a tour brochure, right? And here's your itinerary, guys. This is what the next three years is going to look like. This is where we're going to go and what we're going to do. No. It's not safe. It's not tidy. He says, follow me. Later in Luke chapter 9 and verses 57 through 58, we're told, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Being a follower of Jesus means giving up safety and comfort and all that's familiar sometimes. But with the sacrifice comes the offer of having a life of true significance. If these three men had remained fishers of fish, They would have made enough to survive, maybe put away a little, had a trip or two. But then their life would have ended with no eternal significance. But as they leave that to follow Christ, they become a part of a ministry where people are healed. They see thousands come to faith. They even see the dead brought back to life. And today God offers us that same opportunity. When Jesus says to us, follow me. This morning you have a choice. Will you simply be a believer? Or will you become a follower of Jesus Christ? The safe way is to say, I believe in Jesus. And occasionally go out on a Christian tour. We can go out and we can touch the locals. We can talk about that adventure, take a photo and say, look what I did. Or we can become a traveler with Christ. We can follow him. Not always knowing what the next step is going to be. Not always knowing how he's going to provide. It's not foolishness. It's not blind faith. But as you come to know who Christ is and more about him and you trust him, you're willing to do more and more of what he calls you to do. This morning, I want you to consider that question. Will you say to to God this morning, Lord, here's my life. Will you open your hands and say to him, all that I am, All that I have, I offer to you. Take and use me, take and use my stuff, take and use everything you've blessed me with, however it is that you want. If we live our lives like this, not only can God not put anything else in our hands, but it hurts a whole lot more when he opens our hands and pries them apart to take what's there away. We're coming to the communion table now. As we come to the communion table, we're reminded of Jesus Christ, not only opening his hands,
for the nails to be driven in them, but also he opened his arms wide. And he spread them apart and he said, God, not my will, but your will. Remember as he was there in the garden of Gethsemane, as he was facing the cross, as he was looking ahead to the prospect, he knew what the plan was. He knew what was about to happen. And he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But if not, my will to be done, your will. So this morning as we come to this table, we're reminded of God and his great love for us, God and his grace, where he left the comfort and the glory of his throne in heaven to come to earth, to take on flesh and blood, to walk among us, to be in a boat with Peter, knee-deep in the muck and the mire, as flopping fish were around, to see Peter face down saying, Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. We're all sinners. We're all fallen. But God didn't say to us, get away from me. He said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so if you're here this morning, you've never come to faith in Christ. If you've never come to that point of recognizing you are who you said you are, Jesus. The Son of God. The Holy One. The sacrifice for my sins. If you have enough exposure to him, you've seen enough evidence, and what's holding you back is this fear of following him. I want you to to tell God this morning what your fears are and to ask him to take that away. And if you're truly ready to turn from your sins into him as your savior, in a moment as the elements are passed, I want you to take the cup representing his blood, take the bread representing his body, and say, Jesus, today I'm accepting you as my savior. I'm accepting your death in my place. It's what Romans 6.23 tells us. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And as you take and hold those elements, say to God, today, Jesus, I'm accepting you as my Savior. Thank you for taking my place and paying that penalty of death I owed. And for the rest of us who have come to faith in the past, God wants us to examine our lives. Maybe you've walked in here this morning having walked away from God. You've been living in sin. God says, confess your sins this morning. You haven't lost your salvation, but your fellowship is broken. And he says, I want you to be reminded today of what I did to restore your broken fellowship. This table is open to all who are believers in Jesus. You don't have to be a member of Wayside, just a part of the family of God. So as the elements are passed, I want you to take and hold the bread and the cup, and I'll lead us in communion in a moment. Will you serve us, please? As John told the disciples, those who had been following him, He said, you need to stop following me and you need to follow this one. This one who is the Lamb of God. The one who took on flesh and blood, who came to take away the sin of the world. What we hold in our hand is simply a piece of bread, but it represents the body. The physical flesh that Jesus took on so that he could go to the cross and take our sin upon himself to pay that penalty of death that we owed. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he did in remembrance of him. Here's a cup of juice. But again, what it represents is something so much more precious. Something that our finite minds cannot even grasp. It represents the blood of Jesus Christ 
blood that had to be shed to wash away your sins and mine. Because the book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And unless it was the Lamb of God, the perfect and permanent sacrifice, the sin penalty would have remained. But Jesus came, and he took your place and mine, and he washed away our sins, the blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your great love. We thank you, Lord, for the provision of your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you were willing to leave the comfort of your throne in heaven to come and walk among the mess of the world, to come and save people like Peter and James and John and the Samaritan woman at the well, and the, the woman caught in adultery, and Zacchaeus, the, the fraudulent tax collector, and the Roman soldier, and the, the corrupt religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, some who came to recognize who you are. Thank you, God, that you came to save me and all of these present this morning. Lord, we know you came to save others that we see every day boys and girls at school, men and women we work with, soldiers at the base, people we see on the street. And so, Father, would we be messengers of the good news? Would we be messengers of grace? As people are thinking this time of year, what is Christmas all about? Is there singing songs and seeing mangers and other things? Would we be messengers of the good news? Would we tell people, this is what it means, this is who he was, and who he is, the one who wants to be your Savior, the Son of God. Thank you, God, for the gift of eternal life. Thank you for giving us the privilege of partnering with you to be fishers of men. Would we not merely be believers and tourists, but would we be followers who go into the world and call others to follow you as well, Jesus? We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.